Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with Russell Brand. This week I spoke to the incredible Brene Brown. Brene Brown is the author of five number one New York Times bestseller books. Her TED Talk has got 30 million views. It's 40 million, I've checked actually, making it one of the most viewed ever. She's got that new Netflix special, which I've already told you about, called The Call to Courage. She's an expert researcher in vulnerability, courage and shame. It's one of... I mean, it's one of my favourite conversations I think I've ever had in my life. I became somewhat infatuated by her potent, nurturing, intelligent, grounded, strong energy. I understand why this person has become a phenomenon. She's certainly someone that I consider a, um, what do I want to say, like a mentor, a hero, a guiding light, a coordinate. But before we get into Brene Brown, let's uh, promote the hell out of me. You should sign up for my YouTube channel, Russell Brand, and uh, and you'll get loads of spiritual videos, me talking about, like, I don't know, anxiety of, in all its forms, recovery, confidence, various forms of self-help built around the principles of 12-step recovery. Sign up. There's free videos every single day. Also, if you follow me on Instagram at True Russell Brand, you'll get loads of stuff on there, little short clips and insights. Also, you could watch Rebirth on Netflix. You'll really enjoy it. Plus, mentors and recovery are available as audio books. You can get them on Kindle or you can buy them as physical books from a little old bookshop from a little old lady clinging onto her business as Amazon bears down like a combine harvester upon her. Follow me on Twitter. If you want to talk to me about Under the Skin, yeah, use that hashtag, hashtag Under the Skin. If you want to talk to me about Brené Brown, that's what people done last week with the Kip Anderson uh, episode. Samantha R. Higginson at Samantha Rose goes, just listen to the latest episode of Under the Skin with Rusty Rockets and Kip Anderson. I absolutely love these podcasts, eye-opening and awe-inspiring. Her eyes have been opened, awe has been inspired. Ancient Fern goes, I always love a vegan who admits they didn't want to give up the food they liked, but some things can't be unseen. Yeah, I didn't become a vegan easily. I did not go gently into that good night. I raged, raged against the dying of the dairy fats. Same as you, says Kasani 100. Vegan a year and a half because of the documentary. It triggers people when I tell them I'm vegan and state some facts from the doc. I've learned to avoid the conversation entirely. Unlike Kip Anderson, he wades into that conversation and is offering people out, isn't he? He wants to put a cow in a field. And like, Have you heard some of this stuff? What a great doc- What a great um, episode it was with Kip. What a great guy. Caitlin Wurzbalger says, I've been vegan for four years. It's the best decision I've ever made. My asthma disappeared. I lost weight. And I love who that I am now that my actions and values are aligned. But I've got to assume we've got loads of comments going vegan i'll slice you in twain you know sort of me as i've said before about my own personal codes of morality i don't want to inflict them on others do what you like i don't care as long as you're happy you're not upsetting anyone even if you are upsetting someone it's just uh well it's just not a good way to proceed is it now if it's spiritual wisdom you want listen to this episode of under the skin with brene brown coming up immediately prepare yourself for falling hopelessly in love Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? 
and welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Brene Brown, I'm so happy that you're on Under the Skin, happy and a bit nervous. Me too. Really I'm really nervous. I was trying to like make a philosophy cheat sheet so I could stay up with you, but then I was like, screw it. Well, you know, if we're flattering each other, then I'll tell you that um, I find your work really, really enriching and rewarding, and the manner with which you convey it is very beautiful. Whoever Thank put you. together your special, not, uh, the content obviously speaks for itself via you, uh, but the the impact that you were having on the audience is very, uh, I thought was in, was significant, and the, whoever put that together, it's a, it's done a good job. Thank it's you. really thanks, yeah, no, I'm really really um, into it. I think you're speaking about important stuff in a really really interesting way, and I felt mostly what I was excited by is the way that it for me felt liberated from a few things one a kind of a new age hokiness because i like a view i like your folky earth texanness i really like that and uh, the other thing that i like is that you don't seem like a person that's spent all their life in sort of cities and around media those two things m- made me feel very comfortable and affected by what you're doing thank you um yeah i I know there's no question there. No, but I but I will say there was a couple things that, that I think are interesting. When we shot it, this is kind of a category creator for Netflix. They didn't mm. they don't have anything like this, right? No. And so I we I watched a lot of comedy specials and when we were talking about me doing this talk at UCLA where it was front filmed, I said, you're going to need to shoot the audience. And they said we don't really shoot the audience for these. And I said I think it's going to be important because in the end, I hope the special is good, but I'm really just there to serve the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't connect with them and serve them, it doesn't matter what you're filming. You know, it's like I'm there. And then we had this great producer, and he said, play football, which, of course, I get as a Texan. And he's like, just play football. Play your game. We'll, yeah. Don't worry about anything else. We'll take care of the cameras and everything else. So they made me feel really comfortable. And I think the down-home thing for me, the folksy part is it's just who I am, yeah. you know what I mean? And then sometimes I get I can get some shame triggers around it, mm-hmm. um, but I really have to fight that a little bit. How and where do you get shame tri- triggers around your Texan-ness? Um, when I'm tired or pissed off, I can slip into like, like, I can start saying things like, yeah, I mean, like just around, around the bin, you can, you know, or I'll say like, you know, shit fire and save matches, you know, like I can sound like my grandmother. Um, and so sometimes I think I'm not, um, you know, I'm not Harvard enough. I'm not, you know, I'm educated, but I, um, you know, you take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the girl. And it's and some, so sometimes I worry about it. Not much anymore, but... No, it doesn't seem like it. Um, but when you... Like, was your entry into academia and research then a kind of personal fortification, do you feel? Uh, yes. I mean, yes, absolutely. In fact, um, I have a master's degree in social... A bachelor's, master's, and PhD in social work. And I remember when I applied to the PhD program and I got accepted... I, it was a, my first experience of depression because I thought I'm enough and I'm good enough, but nothing changed. Like I was like, no, but I'm, I'm good enough now. I'm smart enough now. Like this, this is everything. What, you know, I'm waiting for the, you know, ah, the lift of, you know, and it didn't lift. And so then I got into the PhD program and frick, I was in like 
multivariate anomaly statistics or something. I don't even remember what it was. And I had to get a tutor. And I thought, wait until they find out that they let me in by accident. Like, this is going to be a real shit show. Um, And so it took a long time for me to, yeah, it took a long time for me to be comfortable. Yeah, to not feel like an imposter in this situation. For sure. See that thing you just said there about waiting for you mimed uh, sort of like elevation and light and it felt a bit like rapture-ish. Yeah. Um, Do you think this happens ever to people? Do you think that there is some sort of uh, transcendent (laughs) release from the sort of tangled guts and angst? Not when you're sober. I mean, like, no, I don't think, no, I don't think in the, in the real world, I don't think, I think it's just work. I don't think it's rapture. I don't think there's an angelic choir that comes and surrounds you. Like, no, I don't think that's the case. I think it's small moments of understanding and self-love and integrity string together by a lot of horseshit in between. Yes. It's interesting, like, because obviously, uh, like, well, in your Netflix special, you talk about the circumstances around your TED Talk, and I saw them in reverse order. I'd seen your Netflix special before I saw your TED Talk, and um, I'm struck by your uh, flow state. Like, you seem like someone who has good access to flow, and, like, there with the TED Talk, you seem pretty relaxed and funny. There's a couple of times, there's one of your first big laugh, it feels comes from something you nearly didn't say. It's when you set up like a, you know, so I was going to control everything, you know, let's see how that works out. You sort of undercut something. And it seemed very spontaneous at the time. And it was the first sort of big laugh in a TED talk. Did you have, so did you have any kind of awareness when you're entering into that field uh, and that this was going to be something that changed the direction of your life? And secondarily, how did it feel while you're doing it? Did it feel good while you're doing it? Oh yeah, so I am I am well acquainted with flow. Like I I can I can seize flow, stay in flow, be grateful for flow, lose flow, like I know flow. Yeah. Um for sure. Um and that mostly happens to me when I'm teaching and speaking. I don't really flow is very elusive for me when I'm writing. And so like the TED talk, the Netflix talk, the things that are hard about those for me is they're unrehearsed. I don't do any rehearsal. Mm. They're... Why? Uh, because that's the opposite of flow for me. Mm. So I don't, and it's really nerve wracking. Even when I did TED, um, you know, they were kind of like, we, we need you to, to rehearse. And I said, no, I just need to see my slides and I'm done. Um, my objective when I'm teaching or on a stage giving like the Netflix talk or the TED talk is to be able to, I have a lot of rules, like I need the house lights up, just to look into the eyes of the people I'm speaking to. And if I can look into your eyes, I can track whether we're connected or not. If we're not connected, I know where to go to get us connected. So for me, it's about generosity, service, and connection. It's not about spiel. Yeah. You know, like what's difficult for me because I put together shows as a comedian and like uh, there's these phases of construction of the work. The beginning is spontaneous and improvised in front of small audiences and then I'm usually working towards some end point where it becomes refined. And there's this definite moment that feels like the thing that you said about rehearsal where I'm no longer in the moment but I'm trying to recollect something I've previously done. But that's that's a disaster. Yeah, I hate that. It's a disaster. And so what I know is I know my beats. Yeah. 
I know my beats. I know that I'm going to talk about shame. I'm going to talk about vulnerability. I know I'm going to tell four stories. but And the slides must be good for the beats. The slides are great level. for the beats. Yes, the slides are great for the beats. And it's not like I went to Netflix and told stories I'd never told before. I told stories that I've told five times or 500 times. Yeah. And so, but I just can't, the risk for me, and I don't know how to explain it, but you'll probably get it because you're an actor. If I have to memorize something, I get so worried about doing it wrong that I can't be in connection with myself and other people. Yeah, that's right. Well, the way that, that applies to me as an actor is like, you know, you're only doing it in, if it's TV or film, you only do it in short chunks. I don't learn it, I just look at it before I go up and then I do it like just, I try to have the most limited interaction with the script that is possible is to that have. how that works? It's how I do it. A lot of people though do think I'm very unprofessional and refuse to work with me, so it not, might not be an entirely successful method. But, but I, I like you better than everybody. Thank so that's, you. Yeah. Thank you. So that, yeah, that I try to not have big too enveloped and too involved with it. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's interesting. So you could have, rec- if you'd have recorded another show straight afterwards, it would have been entirely different. Was it? Was we, it no, two? we did. We it did. We we did two back to back, a seven o'clock and a nine o'clock. Did they feel different? Did you end up using the majority of oh one of them? Oh my god! Let me tell you what happened. Mm. <laughs> it was a really rookie mistake. Um, they sat Steve, my husband like four rows back in the center, like right in my eye line. And Steve, Steve does not love public speaking. And so we are so kind of one big hybrid crazy person that we've been together for 30 something years. And so he kind of looks like this when I'm speaking, like, oh my God, that's gotta be so scary. And so when I saw him, I'm like, oh, I'm fucking things up. Like, oh my God, it must not be good. And then he was crying at one point. Which bit? Um... The daughter swimming at the end. No, before that. Can't be the son just making that mask. No one's crying over that. The bit where you two have the argument in the swimming pool. Before, no. Swimming in the lake. I think it was about the gratitude piece, about... um, Oh, not that bit with that door, that shutter door. Yes. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> if y'all if y'all could see right now, Russell's turning to a banana for some soothing. <laughs> man. <laughs> Can't have that image in my head without potassium. Yeah, no, it, yeah, because as a father, like it's not. Yeah, it's bad. Um, so I think that part, and but I was making up all kinds of stories. Like, oh my god, he looks like he's and he's look like he looks like he's in physical pain. Like, what's happening? So on the second show, his ass was in the back in the green room, um, and so that was better. I agree. Like, I don't like seeing anyone at all that I know because I like the audience to respond as sort of a sort of relative, I know human and personal, but an anonymous unit. I don't want to think, oh God, that person might think that because I now remember that that person had that happen in 19 years. Too much going on. You need to be right on that frequency. Yes. Listen, that's the thing that I feel that you're conveying in both that TED Talk and in that Netflix special. And you're saying that the experience of writing is a different one for you. And that's interesting, maybe something we can jump into. But what I think is uh, incredible about what you're doing, of course, you know, there's the time that you're doing it and, you know god you can't take credit for that unless that's you've somehow maneuvered it but it seems to me that we need um voices of reconciliation of voices of heart voices that are like where we kind of start to think right well what's the solution now we seem to be frozen in this moment of polarity and sort of 
sacredness, the necessary transition of power, the introduction of new narratives of who's in control and who's entitled to have power, who does America belong to, who does the world belong to, all these interesting things. But how do we move past that and into, you touched on it in your special, but how do we move into a, a time of reconciliation? How do you see that happening? How do you see your work being applicable to that conversation? those many conversations because there is much polarity in many areas so i mean i don't know the answer to that and i every time i think i know the answer to it something happens that makes me rethink it i think i think what we're in the middle of right now if i had to take my best kind of because i started my research six months before 9 11. so i have really been on the ground watching the world change people and watching people change the world. Like I I watched what 9-11 did, not only to this country, but just globally, you know? And I've never seen people, A, in so much fear, and B, so sick and tired of being afraid. So something's gonna happen. But I think we're in the middle of kind of white male power over making a last stand. I think this is a last stand. And I think last stands are bloody and long and terrible and violent. And I don't know, I can't calibrate exactly where we are in that. Like the world is going to change, but people who feel like power is finite are going to go down fighting. I don't believe, I for one don't believe power is finite. No. I believe it's limitless. It's limitless. And the more you share it, the more it grows. Definitely. And that even like, you know, we could talk about that sort of spiritually and I hope we get to. But even like, you know, you mentioned French philosophers and brushing up on them, like a post-structuralist like Michel Foucault believes that power isn't housed, cannot be housed in individual institutions or relationships. But it's a sort of it's shared, it's knowledge and it's relational. So that sort of makes sense even from that perspective. But then, Brene, like I know you're not like a historian, but I saying if this is and I think that that's certainly part of it the end of a certain type of dominion do you think therefore that up to this point we have been living in white male power and where do you think that do you, would you say that sort of like that's European and American sort of post-colonial story because what about I don't know Islam Ottoman Empire you know certainly there's no doubt that this is a, a hopefully a time where women are heard and have access to power and influence in a way that's perhaps unprecedented in sort of you know in the civilized age but but what i suppose i'm saying is is do you think that we can characterize power up to this point as being white male power if indeed this is a moment where it's ending well certainly so go, go back a couple of things like foucault i actually happen to know because i he's in my dissertation but oh. well, I, I don't think because he's... I'm, all the things i know about foucault i just then i've said them now yeah, I only have one or two things to, uh, to add, which is I don't think you can house power, but I think there can be a desperation to house power and to hoard power and a belief that power is finite. I, I don't think it's – I don't – I want to be really careful about the language because I don't think it's just white male power. It's white male power over. I'm married to an amazing white male who does not believe in the concept of power over. He believes in the concept of power with and power to. Power over. Yeah, so it's power domination. over. It's domination. It is a belief uh. in finite power. And, and I think the white male power over in some ways is a Western idea. But if you think about colonialism, 
it's not super Western. I mean, it is, it is dangerously global. And I think we're still reckoning with the remnants of colonialism. I think we see it every day. Um, And I do think women have more access to power than they've ever had. But I mean, if you look at what's going on in this country, where you see these massive efforts to control women's bodies right now, um, if you see, I think, what's happening in the UK with Brexit, I, you know, there's two things. I had two weird premonitions. One, I thought Brexit was definitely going to pass. And two, I thought Trump would get elected based on very short glimpses into the world. And, you know, I I always, I study people, so I'm always in that weird kind of like listening. But I was in the back of like a traditional black cab going somewhere in London. And my cab driver said to me, this was before the Brexit vote. He said, this used to be my neighborhood. And I said, wow, it's beautiful. And he goes, it's not beautiful. It's just full of Muslims now. And my old school is a mosque now. And he said, but we'll get it back. There's a lot of us who want it back. We'll get it back. And I thought at that moment, like, Something, something's going on here. And then I watched Trump during the election period give a, 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 lection, a stump speech somewhere. And he said, hey, and for all of you folks that feel small because you're not politically correct, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And I thought, shit. He just spoke to millions and millions of people who have felt small, unheard, ashamed. And I thought, you know, There's something about this rhetoric that is so attractive to people. I mean, people I know, people I love. Yeah, me and all. What what fascinates me, Brene, is that what were the conditions that meant that Brexit and Trump were possible? What void was there? What longing, what need, what neglect was there that that, you know, because I met that Donald Trump one time and I just was curious. I I thought this person has no uh, intellectual robustness and no, um, no, he ain't protean. He was like a rigid minded thing. And I thought, how has that person even got that much money? He's like metronomic intellectually. And and yet, somehow, what he knows is useful. What he did is powerful. And, and my personal opinion is that it's because what preceded him wasn't bloody good enough, that too many people, that the, the space has been created for that kind of person to thrive. And I feel the same way about Brexit, that if people like, you know, that dude in your cab, you know, and, and I think this is one of the things, and I recognise that this can't be regarded a priori over women's rights, the rights of right. oppressed people, blah, blah, blah. That's not my point. My point is that the, like the man who's driving that cab, when we talk about white power and powerful white men, you say on one hand there's men like your husband, lovely white man. I hope white men like me that are trying their best to participate in change and fairness yeah. and justice. And then there's white men that are working class blue collar have nothing never had nothing known lives of nothing but struggle uh, somehow being sort of lumped in with this dominant patriarchal structure without ever having experienced its benefits because of the economic barriers that surround them any conversation about social justice and change that does not include economics and class yeah is bullshit why is it getting excluded well, I want to go back. Let me go back, and then we'll talk you about that. I want to go back. My yeah. school's a fucking mosque. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to that. Yeah, let's go back. I know we say nostalgia is, um, the best definition of nostalgia is the way things were, comma, when people knew their place. 
Mm. You know, but so let's. But it does literally mean our pain. It does. It means, did uh, you uh, teach me that in one of your I did. things? I did. <laughs> I'd like to tell you something. Another thing. Try and be a bit more bloody vulnerable, love. <laughs> You're coming in here. There's no fun. Where's the vulnerability? You've got to I'm, take a risk. I'm all armored up. It's your, it's your top ponytail. <laughs> Don't say that. Because that's costume. That ain't even my ponytail. That belongs to a man in a fictional universe. It's my hair. But I would never do that. You wouldn't do the loppy ponytail yeah, on top? The waterfall? Yes, you would. Yeah, I would. I could bust that. You could totally bust that. It's super cute with the glasses you stole from set. <laughs> Borrowed. Borrowed. Um, oh, son of a sea cook. Okay. <laughs> That's some good colloquial language right there. Son of okay. a sea cook. Never heard that one. Let's store that for time. <laughs> it's good that that's on record. Put it record. in the Brene Brown time capsule. Plan it in Austin. Um, did I break it? Mm-hmm. I've gone rogue over here, y'all. Okay. So we've taken this uh, back because I said including it, economics. Okay, yeah. uh, I'm class. replaying the whole thing in my mind. I can get there. Okay, you said what were the conditions that set up these things to happen? Here's the thing. I mean, do you want to do? You, if you want to take over the world, I could be your evil sidekick. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it would be so fun. Um, okay, you only have to do a couple of things. You have to one make sure that you exacerbate people's fear and uncertainty and then deliver an enemy that they could blame for their fear and uncertainty. If you can do those things, you can rule the world. If you can, if you can weaponize vulnerability, fear and uncertainty, get people really divided and rattled, and then deliver on a golden platter an enemy that they can blame for their pain, mm. you, can, you can do anything. Unless, unless you have a self-aware, enlightened populace. Because populace. the shame of it is Brexit and Trump isn't going to make life better for working class blue collar people, is it? It's not going to I mean, improve no, their we, lives. We, but we know Even that. We, we know, like, the economists will tell you that. We know that. Like, there's, that's not a, I wonder if, I wonder, you know, no, that's not, that's, you know, Trump is not making things better for working class Americans. Brexit will not make things better for that cab driver. Mm. Like, if you're pissed off about Uber and you're pissed off about your neighborhood, this is not going to make things better. And but, so, but on their behalf, neither was the European Union and neither was Barack Obama. So, like, their disillusion comes from the failures, I would say, of neoliberalism. And I've heard, like, Slavoj Žižek, their sort of yeah. flat guy, saying, like, the fault lies with the Democrats. That's, that's where the blame is. There's no point blaming Trump. Why are the Democrats not doing their job? Why are, they, why is, why is socialism failing? And, and I've got you know, loads of things to say speculatively about that. But one of the things I'm saying about you... And what I am sort of excited by and want to sort of explore with you is, you know, when I, I watch a lot of right wing stuff because I'm interested, like not for, not because it's like, yeah. oh, this speaks to me. Like, because, <laughs> uh, because I'm thinking like, fucking hell. Like, you know, I understand nationalism as yeah. a response to globalization. Yeah. Telling people like two decades, you know, two generations ago, oh, yeah, well, there's this thing called England. Go and die for it, will you? Oh, there's no, there's no England now. There's yeah. no England Doesn't now. Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, and nationalism is, is so seductive. I mean, you know, I have, a, you know, do, do you know about my like really, it's embarrassing to talk about, but I have a slight addiction to like old British crime dramas. What like? Um, New tricks. Prime suspect. Prime suspect. Oh, yeah, with Helen Mirren. Mirren. Yeah, like, and I could see how people watch those, like, late at night. And, like, it's, 
nostalgia is a real thing. Like people look back and they look back to the way it never was actually. They, you know, they, we romanticize the past, but yeah, like fight and die for us. And there is no us anymore. And, but we really, I mean, we, you know, like you and I both know, right? There are no national solutions for the problems we face as humanity, right? When we think about the environment, when we think about the refugee crisis, there's no national solution to these things, only global solutions. But I could see how that would scare people shitless because their identity is so wrapped up in who they are and where they're from. And y'all, yes. and y'all have a much longer history of that than we do. Yes, and for a while now it feels to me that governments have operated in the service of corporate interests and transnational interests and have not been serving the people that they were elected to take care of that's where i think the disillusionment comes from the, the, the mistrust it, it is it is i mean yeah like i have been trying to do this thing it hasn't worked yet i, I want to get your thought about it this is my question do you think i could transcend the political realm and only look at things moving forward through a spiritual lens yes this is the solution. You don't I'm think that's certain shit? of it. I'm certain of it. I'm certain of it that to to access people beyond their tribal identities, beyond the indoctrination of rationalism and materialism and its limitations, looking continually for intellectual solutions, uh, the only way to access that is some form of universal spirituality, some kind of conversation that is non-exclusive, non-denominational, and gives us access and gives us access to the heart of people. And this ain't highfalutin stuff because <laughs> it's like. A <laughs> Madam, uh, because uh, because it's like it's kindness and love and oneness, sort of basic perennial yeah, that's it. That's spiritual it. principles that recur throughout all scripture. Everybody from west to east, I mean, yeah, that's it. Kindness, oneness, love. That's it. So do you think that as well then? I can't decide whether I think it's the bravest thing I could do or the most fear-based thing I could do. What, why do you think it might be fear-based? Because what about... That's going to take a long time. And so do the people who are suffering from injustice now, eh, sorry, you, you know, you, you got caught in that crack between, you know, the political realm and the spiritual realm. And sorry about, you know, your 45 years uh, in jail for selling pot when now the white folks are selling pot and making 45 million a year. Like, like what about all, what about all the casualties that need the attention now? That's a really difficult question. And when I was more involved in politics in Britain, and when I say involved yeah. in politics, I was making videos on the internet. I wasn't in Parliament. But it became... But you this, were involved. There was this mad moment where I became a bit too influential. And like the leader of the opposition on the eve of the election came around my house. I think somewhat because maybe because Barack Obama had gone on Mark Marin and stuff like that. So like, you know, and I was like, I was doing these very political videos. I was saying these outrageous things, being a real provocateur. And it actually made me quite sick. And I had a mental breakdown as a result of uh, it. I, yeah. It made me it mental. It was really dangerous. It was terrifying. It was awful. It was awful. That's where I would relate to the fear aspect of what you're talking about. Yeah. Like when you go in there, that's a sharp tank they know what they're doing some swami said to me if you're gonna fight crocodiles don't fight them in a swamp <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like that i don't know who said it but that's that's a texanism right there yeah yeah it does sound very texan yeah. you change that to alligator probably yeah, alligator we? yeah <laughs> we wrestling the alligators in the swamp <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, that's how we would do that. Yeah. Well, like I didn't like that was a fearsome and really, really scary time for me. And people said to me, "No, you should encourage people to vote for." Because my initial position was contemporary politics is you know not it's like the rhetoric of the alt right now. As a matter of fact, contemporary politics has failed. You're not given any real options. You'll be voting for two people that broadly believe the same things and represent the same interests. Ultimately, you need alternatives from outside the political mainstream. I obviously meant spiritual, loving, all inclusive. <laughs> Evolved. Let's break down power structures and share power. You were but draining the swamp. I was trying oh, to I drain was. that swamp. I uh, ended up filling it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Just put an extra turd in the swamp. <laughs> Donald using it as a toupee. <laughs> I'm arming the enemy. So, and like, uh, and people said to me, like people that were more classically politically educated, educated in general, said to me, like. Uh, no, no. If you're a, per, you know, like, oh, the gap between the two parties may not be big enough, but the millions of people live and die in that gap. For example, yes. the Labour Party will give this kind of welfare to people on disability benefits. They'll do that, yeah. And it was sort of like, all right, okay, okay. There was that. That was the good side of it. And on the other hand of it, one of my mates went, "Fucking hell, Russell, you've you've become so influential that if you literally go vote Labour, Labour might win, and it will be because of you, and you'll be so powerful." And I went, "Yes." Yes, I will. (laughs) (laughs) And the creature, the lurking belly snake, lurched up in me and it took me over, Brene. And I did do a video saying vote Labour. And it was partly because of the thing you said about, like, you know, the significance of people that right now are suffering from these minor, you know, yeah, there's no no small thing to be in jail for 45 years. Uh, You know, but also my ego took over. So isn't it ultimately a spiritual question? For us as individuals, I would say it's a spiritual question anyway. Like, Like, what is the most important thing in your life? What are you being directed to do? Are you being directed to regard this as a spiritual problem? Are you being directed to regard this as an administrative, bureaucratic and political problem? I have the answer. All right, finally. Yes. Make sure we're recording. I have my answer, not the answer. I don't have anywhere close to the answer, but I have my answer. My answer is, this is my, this is going to be my contribution. Like, I'm going to continue to give money to and vote what I believe is right. And, you know, fuck all who don't think that I should be doing that. But that's what I'm going to do. Because when I go up with political stuff, people go crazy. Good day. Oh, you have no idea. They want to own you because I bet there's a lot of people on the right that sort of dig the whole yeah, no, folky yeah, Texan thing. Yeah, and, and, and you know, like I'm, I'm a radical moderate, kind of a radical centrist in some ways. Yeah, I, I really am. Like, like, and so I think my, my contribution will be this. I believe Father Richard Rohr, pain that is not transformed will always be transmitted. So... What I believe my contribution is, is to help people see themselves in a way that where they are courageous and capable of transforming their own pain so they don't take it out on each other, they don't take it out on the you know, political bunkers. So that's my contribution. My contribution is, you know, in order to create the right kind of government, the right kind of community, we have to be the right-headed people. And so yes, that's, yes. that's my inflection point, I hope. I, yes, you know. you're definitely correct. But when you start caging kids and stuff. Yeah, that's not good, surely. In no. any language. Yeah, no, then I'm going to say something. And then what happens is I get the people that say, you changed my life. How dare you go against my political party? I don't love you anymore. I don't trust you anymore. You know, like, you know, it's kind of... 
it's kind of like they need, they really need, if they benefited from my work in any way, they really needed me to be a certain person. So they ask for me to be politically neutral, which begs the question for me, did you read the fucking book? <laughs> like, did you read the book? There is, you know. In a sense, Brene, the, the uh, he's between, getting serious the here. The hands come down. Yeah. And I seldom do that. Yeah. I'm chopping nothing. He's like, cho- he's doing like the my dad chopping thing. Go ahead. There is no line between spiritual and political because if you think of like, e.g., the principles of socialism, fraternity, oneness, look after one another. Yeah. Christianity, fraternity, oneness, look after one another. I was thinking about like, I've been thinking about, I'm reading this book, Jen gave me it yesterday actually, like a Tolstoy mm-hmm. wrote a bloody version of the Gospels. Right, he rewrote the Gospels chronologically, like so from all Matthew, four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and like those ours? guys. Yeah, those guys. So he put them in order, and um, like uh, you know, so I'm thinking that like Jen, give me it's, it was my birthday, like, and he's talking about like um, the bit that I'm thinking about now, you know, render unto God what is God's, to Caesar what is Caesar's, but like uh, there's no way of extracting Christian principles from politics because because even the sovereignty project nationalism itself is underwritten by hierarchical and and temp parad i want to say paradigmatic even if it's not a word structures that are derived from monotheism anyway the very idea of a state the idea of a sovereign the idea of the these structures are borrowed from uh, structures that existed that exist in religion so my point is this is that if to refer back to your point, I'm sure you have a thousand things to say. But if we are going to commit to the spiritual life and changing the world through spirituality, it can't but bleed into politics. It's gonna one hundred, like you said. Did you read my fucking book? Compassion, kindness, love, yeah. tolerance, forgiveness, yeah. communication, copy, vulnerability. These are spiritual principles. That if they and if our political life bears no relationship to those things, then what is politics? Today, I think it's transactional economy is what I think politics is. I think it is actually void of spirituality. And I think that's the crisis we find ourselves in. I think the crisis we find ourselves in, the polarity, the ideological bunkers, I actually think it's a spiritual crisis. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I was curious about what you said. Do you think that we can't have government in the West without Christianity? Or do you think Christianity underpins, like, is it just Western? Is it? Are we I just talking spiritual principles? Principle to be honest, okay. I didn't even yeah. mean Christianity. I'm yeah. saying that they can't be divorced. Uh, like, and, and when they are, as you have just said, there is a danger. There is a real risk because it doesn't. It doesn't relate to us as human beings. I thought it was curious that when Theresa May resigned, that she sort of wept, and suddenly we saw her humanity. And for me, I read into that. Wow, she couldn't be who she was while she did that job. No, no, her job I, did not permit her. But why wouldn't it be good if we had a kind of politics? And I would say that the structural changes go way beyond this but look, that where human beings were able to be human while in those roles like yeah fuck that up i'm really really sorry i don't know how to do that i don't break it's complicated i'm confused what do you think you know what i mean it's the discourse is extracted from humanity from from humanitarianism it becomes a bureaucratic language it can't it can't interface with who we actually are i'm having such an aha moment as i'm sitting here like i don't think I hope you mean realization rather than the danish pop group Oh my God! Take me like that one. <laughs> exactly. Where the, the videos and like sketch. Drawing. Yeah. Sorry for that really silly joke when you're on the edge of epiphany. No, I'm not going to talk for a while. I think that's a God moment because I really loved that video. Um, oh, I really loved it because the girl had short hair. 
Yeah. And, and I you wanted short hair. I did. Um, here's my aha moment. Um, can any system thrive and work when it's devoid of spirituality, when systems only exist to serve people who are inherently spiritual beings? You don't have to tell me that again. I got caught up in just looking at your eyes. So cute, y'all. <laughs> um, we're making <laughs> because you mentioned the hair. Yeah, and then no. I started to think of you physically. I apologise for that. <laughs> uh, okay, can any system that has divorced itself from spirituality work if all systems are designed to serve people who are inherently spiritual yeah, beings? Yeah, they're definitely not because they're excluding vital and necessary aspects. See, but the, the core, they're excluding the core, the core the of essence. who we are. And that's my point about Theresa May. It's not like I'm not being like a flippant about her like crying because she's losing her job. I'm sure there's all sorts of personal reasons, but I just thought it's a good indicator that we've created systems where people can't be human or spiritual, that we... It's a form of objectification. We objectify. No, we totally objectify. It, it is, and it's it's dehumanization, which I think is the most dangerous thing we're facing right now. Is is rampant dehumanization. Yeah. Um, which you know, dehumanization starts with language, and has been at the forefront of every genocide in history. Yes. You know, and, and we see that now. We see it with the way Trump talks about immigrants, those animals. You know. Um, yeah, they're they're. I mean, this is so helpful for me personally. I hope <laughs> it's helpful for somebody else, but really it's enough for me. It's helpful for me right now because it really is how do you create systems that are devoid of divorce from spirituality when systems serve humans who are inherently s- spiritual? I mean, that's that's what's wrong with – I mean, that's the work I do with leaders. Like, we've completely dehumanized work. It's like, you know, we talk about people as capital. Yes, Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like, that's why stories matter so much. Well, when you go and do these gigs, such mm-hmm. as you will do today, and uh, yeah. must take up a look at your calendar, and like, I, I'm certainly not judging that. I would like, it's the sort of thing I'd be very interested in doing yeah. myself. How, like, I think you talk again in your show about like uh, saying, look, I can't just come in and tell people to be a bit vulnerable. You know, like once the genie's out of the bottle, yeah. we're in a different territory. Well, in a sense, Brene, the road that you're already on is one that ends with people saying, you can't have these kind of brutalizing economic systems that regard everything as a commodity, that regard the earth as a commodity, the human yeah. beings as a commodity. So in the end, like, you know, you follow these chains up high enough, who's running these Silicon Valley companies, these big media companies, whoever, it leads to people who are fundamentally obligated to provide profit, sometimes at all costs, at all costs. And those at all costs include, you know, like little kids in the Congo mining for shit that's just part of our everyday yeah, life. Yeah. But I mean, but the people that you're talking about, those CEOs, are people the people I work with all the time. And I bet they're lovely. Um, oh, some. Right. I mean, I, w- I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't. And they're humans. I so they do are. It, but it's, what they are is they're human, and they are as desperate for everything we're talking about now: love, oneness. Um, kindness as we are. Do you think, you must think that we can get through. You must think that we can get through. You must think that you can talk to anyone, Donald Trump. You must think you can talk to anyone and, and that in them there's this mo. there's the thing, it's in there. The consciousness that's in him looking back at you when you look at him, that's the same, it's God. It's in there. Oh, I, I can find the face of God in anyone. 
so that there can be no room for sort of condemnation yeah, or maybe condemnation uh, but we can't cut them off is what i mean condemn perhaps you know but what i'm saying is there's got to be a way back for everybody I, yeah i mean the thing the thing that has changed my life completely is i can find god in you i can find love in you but i'm going to hold you accountable for what you've done while i'm loving you yeah i mean that's a huge part of my recovery tell me more about that um it was probably one of the findings from my research that I had this stack of data probably 12 years ago, and we laughingly called it the compassion smackdown. It was the stack of data, the most compassionate people that we had interviewed over this first initial like eight year period when I started my research. And we couldn't figure out what they had in common. Like we couldn't like, what is it? And I thought my hypothesis was spirituality. I think compassionate people share in common a strong spiritual belief, but it wasn't. And I mean, I'm talking like monks that we had interviewed, like really compassionate people, people that found God in everyone, people that connected to everyone. And you know what they had in common? One variable. I don't know. Boundaries of steel. Ooh, what do you mean? And how does the how does the data how does the process of inquiry? What are the questions that reveal the compassion, and what are the questions that reveal the boundaries when there's so much variance? So I'm a grounded theory researcher, which means I'm a qualitative researcher. Meaning we do long interviews, we code them by hand, and we look for patterns and themes in the data, and we look until we reach saturation, meaning this pattern or theme has saturated across so many interviews, we can predict it to happen in the next one and the next one and the next one. And the hard thing, the great thing about grounded theory, I'll just, I'll geek out on for a little bit with you. The great thing about grounded theory, it was developed in the late 50s by kind of two American, two founders of American sociology, Barney Glazer and Anselm Strauss. They were looking for a methodology, both social scientists at the University of Chicago, they were looking for a methodology that would allow them to study very difficult topics that were taboo in many areas. And so what they were trying to study was death in children, children dying. And you really couldn't talk about it at the time. So at the time, there was kind of a pact between parents, clergy, nurses, and physicians that when children were actively dying in a hospital, they would not tell the children they were dying. They would say, everything's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. So Glazer and Strauss wanted to better understand the impact that had. And and if children believed what was happening. But they weren't allowed to say, hey, you're dying, what do you think? And so they developed this methodology for just, for developing theory based on people's lived experiences that, that they share with researchers through their own stories. So they would just sit down with kids and say, tell me what's going on. And what they found and what saturated across all the kids they talked to is the kids said, I'm dying but it must be really bad, it must hurt a lot because no one's telling me about it. And so this methodology grew into, and you can do it with qualitative data and quantitative data, but what you're looking for is are theories that emerge from the data because you have saturation. I've talked to 40 people or 400 people asking these questions, and so for compassion, we started by asking what is compassion to you, and we developed a definition of, uh, of compassion. And then we looked at people who lived out the operationalized definition of compassion, that saw humanity in everyone, who reached out with kindness and empathy. There was a oneness. And then we asked, okay, here are these group of people, what do they share in common? And we looked for a long time, because I, I think I was looking in the wrong places, but what I realized is that they were incredibly boundaried people. 
And so that was confusing to me. So we went back and did what we call selective coding. We went back and said, here's what I'm finding. Does that resonate with you as one of our compassionate people? And they said, I would have not languaged it that way, but yes, I'm very clear about what's okay and what's not okay. I'm very clear on boundaries. I, I, I don't subject myself to the abuse of other people. I'm like, but, but you're compassionate. And they're like, yeah, I'm compassionate because I don't subject myself to the abuse of other people. And so from that, we developed this idea of big, what boundaries need to be in place for me to be in my integrity and generous towards you. And the first time, one of the times I tested it out was with a group of deacons in, in this isolated, you'd love this place, like West Texas town, like t- replete with tumbleweeds. And or a group of clergy who have to travel and they marry everyone and they bury everyone and they go from small town to small town. And I asked this series of questions, so it's really interesting. So the first one is, do you believe that people are doing the best they can? Do you believe in general that when people wake up every day, they're doing the best they can? What do you think? Yes, I do. You do? So it's very split and it's a very difficult question because about right over half of the people say, fuck no. People are not doing the, people suck. (laughs) People are not doing the best they can. I was one of those people too. I was a hell no, people are not doing the best they can. Then the next question is, if you don't believe it, I want you to picture someone in your life who you believe is not doing the best they can, who really irritates you and just just makes you crazy. And everybody would get a picture. And I said, what if God came down? It was easy with a group of, you know, well, don't believe priests. God. Yeah, no, yeah. He wouldn't come down. Right. Well, you're in the clergy. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So I said, what if God came down to you and said, this person that you wrote down on your napkin, he or she is doing the very best they can right now. And then what happened was literally physically about half the people in the room kind of fell over and slumped over in their chairs and just started sobbing. And so one couple, both deacons in the Episcopal Church, I said, tell me about the reaction you're having right now. And they said, they were married, both deacons, and they said, we wrote down the same person. And this person lives in a trailer in the desert. They've had their children removed several times. Every time we remove children for abuse or neglect, they have another child. Every time we bring money, they don't use it for formula. They split the formula with water, and they gamble the money. And their kids get removed for failure to thrive because the formula's been split with water. And we kind of hate them. And I said, and, and I said, and God told you he was doing the best he could. It was really about the father and the family. What was your response to that? Continue to help with a loving, non-judgmental heart, or we need to stop helping. But helping through hatred is not helping. And we are outside of our integrity and outside of our faith. And another woman said, you know, I didn't pick someone that I serve as a clergy. I picked my sister. And my sister was a dancer growing up. And now she's a stripper. And I have two young nephews who are subjected to who she brings home at night and her job. And if God told me that she was doing the very best she could, and this is the answer that comes up all the time, I would have to stop being angry and start grieving the loss of a sister that I needed in my life. And I would try to love her, but I'd have to have some boundaries about what's okay in front of my kids. 
And so this whole idea of it's very hard to be compassionate toward people when they're hurting us. And people hold on to believing, you know, for me, it was really interesting because I was like, hell no, people are not doing the best they can. And if that's your butt best, you suck. And it's not best enough for me. And, and this, this was in the middle of it, talking about a God moment. So I'm in the back of the car, I'll never forget, with another couple, Steve and the husband were in the front and I was riding the back with my girlfriend and we were going to see John Mayer at the Woodlands. And I was like, hey, I'm doing this interesting research right now. Do you think people are doing the best they can? She goes, hell no. People are so fucking lazy. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was like, I was like, oh, this is why we're good friends. I'm like, they are, aren't they? She goes, yeah. Like, and we both had young kids at the time. She said, let me give you an example. She's like, what about the people that have kids and they stop breastfeeding before a year or a year and a half? Like, what about those people? She's like, oh, I can't breastfeed anymore. I've got an infection or I'm going back to work and I don't like pumping. And all of a sudden... I'm like, oh, my God, that's me. Like, I quit breastfeeding after, like, five months because I had to go back to work, and pumping was just not working, and I just didn't do it. So I'm like, yeah, those people are awful. And she goes, yeah, like, you know, why did you have kids if you weren't willing to do that? That was her take. And I was like, and all I wanted to say was, you don't know me. Like, you don't know <laughs> And then here's what I wanted to say. I was fucking doing the best I could. Wow. And then toward the end of that research, yeah, there were a lot of great stories about people we interviewed during that. Um, I asked Steve, you know, my husband, do you think people are doing the best they can? And he said, I don't know, I have to think about it for a little bit. And I said, I really, I want your help. And he's like, okay, let me think about it. And he came back like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, and he said, I've thought about it. And he said, I have no idea. But what I do know is my life is better when I assume they are. Mm, Fucking hell, that's good. Steve, Steve, believe in God. Yes. It's interesting that uh, it feels to me that it would be difficult to achieve that um, perspective from a materialist, secularist, atheist position, i.e. that, you know, the transformation, people that had already accepted God and were living a religious life. And like, and yet continue to be like, because obviously I'm thinking when you're talking, yeah, I do believe people are doing the best they can, but I'm not going around like, hey, well done, well done, like that fucking cunt, look at that they're driving, I kill them. Yeah, oh, yeah that's, yeah, what I'm, that's my reality. Yeah, me too. But they, but like when I realise <laughs> I, I can't live in this state of mind, then I go, other people are none of my business. Yeah. My job is to be of love and service. Those people are as God made them. They're trying their best. Right. You know, all of that stuff. That's I use these techniques to get back down off of judging people and thinking people are, you know, like the anger. Because I can't live with the anger. I can't live in the polluted consciousness of anger. So my, you know, the way I often behave is like, no, you could do better and you would be better if you did what I tell you to do. And when I'm also, when I'm on that trip, like that has no limit. It's like everyone in the world's right. You need to do this. You stand there. You do that. You think this. You but should be so like that. But it's so hard because I'm right. Yes. But like, I reckon that, don't you think? People could really do better if they <laughs> did what I said. I'm sure in so many cases, don't you think that the principle of mentorship is helpful here, Brene? Because in other people's lives, yes. I have guys that call me. And like, in, you should hear me in their lives. I'm like, uh, like the Lord. Like just <laughs> <laughs> limitless light. Uh, my wife's done this. I feel this. Well, you know, this is what, how I see. She is a very good woman. And like, I remember when you said this about your wife. And I remember that. And do you remember that moment? You need to forgive. You need to let go. Then my own wife. 
Listen, you call that a birthday dinner? I hate that, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know. And anger is like anger. Anger is one of my anger, resentment, and self righteousness are like uh, drugs of choice for me. The self righteousness, self righteousness. Yeah, I I lost my privilege to have that when I declared my position as an addict. Yeah, because I'm really good at it. Because I'm know. mostly right. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a shame to be so clever and for it to be so useless in bossing people about. <laughs> it is such, a, it's tragic. But you know what? I've, I have really been able to be with people that I've said, you know, I, I, I think you're right. It's easier for sure with clergy or easier with people that believe in God. But I have been able to say to people, because I've done this with like a thousand people in a room, right. write down the name and then what if the universe, what if, you know, but if you have no connection to anything larger than you, yeah, because it doesn't work. Because if you're, you know, it doesn't the, work. If, if you're, you're, if you're that, that transition, that um, the vocabulary transition from God to universe, you're still accepting the idea of an omnipotent entity that knows all. Like uh, you know, like, and being open to the possibility that you could be c- communicated to in that way. You know, like I don't. I even think like I spoke. For a lot, a lot I, he comes up all the time, so it must have really affected me. And this dude that's an astrophysicist, and I really, really like him actually. He's called Brian Cox. He's a very sort of TV astrophysicist, yeah. right? I like him. But he's an atheist, you know, or he said, uh, he, well, initially he says, well, I'd never identify as an atheist because I never liked everything. But then, but that thing that's in your thing, if it can't be measured, it's not there. That came up, right? Yeah, if I'm it, sure. Right? So, yeah. like, and I feel like, how can you ever say that with the limitations of the senses? We've only got these limited instruments to judge stuff do you think that our capacity to for knowledge and knowledge are the same thing or is it possible that our capacity for knowledge is this and knowledge is that yeah i mean everything we're judging is taking place on a fucking pinhead yeah on a pinhead i mean like it's really kansas dust in the wind yeah i mean really if there was a theme song i think yeah, I don't. I, yeah, and it's really hard for so me. So everyone has some sort of faith in, like, you know, beyondness. No, no. Mm-mm. Oh, right, you've done the research. I, <laughs> I'm just guessing. No, you I've know. I've done some good guesses on this. No, you know. Not everyone has. I mean, like, I define spirituality as the belief in the inextricable connection between human beings and something that's grounded in love and goodness. I mean, that's how I describe spirituality. For, you know, for me, it's God, for my dad, it's fishing, like whatever, like nature. But there are people that don't have that. But let me tell you, I've peered into that abyss. I want no part of that yeah, darkness. I can't go down there ever again. I really, I, I, I have a, as, a, as a researcher, I, I have been attracted and seduced by the intellectual arguments of atheism and the people that espouse them. But that is that is more bleak than anything I've ever experienced. That idea. Yeah, the dark certainty. For me, it's it's also faith. It's anti-faith faith. It's the faith that we can determine, that we can understand, that with our observation of the patterns of mat- of material life on this planet, we can calculate, or even you know the universe with people that know about astrophysics, we can ca- calculate the potentially limitless frequencies and dimensions that may exist. How can anyone make that judgment? And like you say, that it's so difficult to steer that away from nihilism. I know a lot of sort of atheists would say, well, if you need God in order to behave good, you know, but I, I don't agree with that. 
I don't agree with it. I feel that, you know, I feel that it's basic and dumb to assume, like uh, I was watching someone say the other day, sad guru, in fact, like that, you know, like part of your, the instruments of your breathing are outside of your body. Without, without oxygen, that's it, game over. You know, your breathing apparatus requires ex an external force. We're, our cells are continually changing. My sense is this, that, through, that tr true transcendence is I can live beyond the idea that I'm an individual entity wrapped in this bag of skin and similarly you, and that there is some connection between us, that this is a temporary illusion. The individualism is a temporary illusion. The truth is that we are one, just points of attention experiencing this dimension, and that we will return to the oneness that the consciousness that inhabits you and the consciousness that inhabits me is the very same consciousness only refracted differently through the myriad material and experiential and biochemical differences and that, that is, if we're heading back to that then I do see then I can get to even if you're in prison for pedophilia that's what that person was doing the best they could with what they had and the only thing we can do is forgive and love and you know sort of incarcerate and, and control yeah, incarcerate and control yeah but that's yes but you don't it first of all i completely agree that it is a no faith theology mm. it is a it is a gospel of no faith it is not any less dogmatic than the most fundamentalist i mean it is it is a theology yeah often uh, using straw men to fortify totally straw men, yes and you know, it's interesting because when I was in my MSW, I did a lot of domestic violence, sexual assault work. And the people, the, the women who believed that their husbands or partners were doing the best they could were the ones who left and got their children out. Wow, because they know there's no, yeah. Yeah. Mm, that you know, makes sense. And, and they, didn't, they didn't say horrible sack of shit. They said, I love him. He's broken right now, and yeah. he's doing the best he can, and I'm not safe, and my kids are not safe. In a sense, it's more fatalistic and more realistic, you know, like that there doesn't need to be this odd alliance no. between being spiritually no. open and being crushed and pushed over and being... Mm, just that's what I, that's the fuck. boundaries. That's the thing. So how does that... Well, tell me more about that boundaries aspect of it, Brene. Here, I mean, you know from recovery, like, here's what's okay and what's not okay. I mean, this is a great... This is this is a, a good story to uh, to illustrate it. So when my, this is probably, she's 20, she's probably six, 14, 15 years ago, we always had a holiday Christmas party. And there was a woman in our neighborhood who drank a lot at, this par at these parties. And I was already sober and I was completely uncomfortable. Well, earlier that year for Lent, I had given up gossiping for Lent. Was it hard? Oh, I, I, had, no, I had no friends. Did you have to sort of go, and I, I mean, all the time. I had to be like, oh my God, did did you do something different with your hair? It looks fantastic. <laughs> like, fuck. Um, but I realized I only had like one or two friends. And the rest of the friendships were really forged on talking shit about other people. That's good. We really didn't have anything in common except being hateful. Um, just, <laughs> which is super Southern. Like, hey, honey, you want to come over some tea and enchiladas and we'll talk about people? Um, like that kind of thing. And so... So then when I was trying to decide what to do about the holiday party, and this woman was the subject of a lot of gossip because she drank too much at book parties, she passed out, you know, these kind of things. And so I was like, what am I going to do? What, what, okay, what is big? What's, what, what, what do my boundaries need to be to be in my integrity but be generous toward her? Because I can't work out my frustration on her by gossiping about her because now I've figured out that's out. That, and that kind of stuff, it's those small things like gossip 
that get slippery for me with my sobriety. Like, like that's outside of my integrity, right? Because it's, you know, the, the thing you talk about in your book, the, the addiction cycle, pain, numb, feels great, shame, pain. Like I have that thing with like gossiping or being out of my integrity. And so I was like, what am I going to do? What boundaries do I do? So I had her come over. And I didn't talk about her with other people. And in fact, when they would talk about her and laugh, I I just would walk away, or I, w- I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't school marm them and be like, don't talk bad about people. I'd just walk away. So I had her come over, and I said, simply having the holiday party, super excited about you and your husband and kids coming. I'm going to have to ask you not to drink when you come to the party this year. It makes me really uncomfortable. Um, you drank too much the last couple of years, and she said, she kind of laughed and she said, yeah, I got loaded. I'll take it easy. And I said. You know, I'm not asking you to take it easy. I'm saying that I hope you come. I'd love for you to come. If you come, I'm going to have to ask you not to drink. It's not comfortable for me. It's not comfortable for my kids. And I'm going to have to ask you not to drink. And she said, are you saying that I can come to your party, but if I come, I can't drink? And I said, that's exactly what I'm saying, along with I hope you come. Oh, my God, I want to kiss you. How did you do that? And she said, I wouldn't come to this party if it was the last effing party thrown in the free world oh fuck she hasn't come no because she's confronted with the truth she's not ready for that but how did you feel how do you feel doing it how do you feel after right i mean i had to go into my whole like my whole henry new and like i am not what people say about me i'm not what people say about me because i knew this would spark the phone tree but for me boundaries are very simply here's what's okay and here's what's not okay hey russell you know what it's okay to be pissed in the meeting it's not okay to pound your fist and scream at people and raise your voice you, you can be pissed, you can be disappointed, take a time out and walk out. How often do you have to do that? Don't you feel so nervous when you have to do that sort of oh, thing? Yeah. I, I mean, yes, I'm looking at Barrett, who knows me really well. I hate having to do that. I do too, but like, what was that thing that we just saw on Instagram from my friends at Black Therapist Rock? Oh, wait. When you, wait. When you avoid conflict, when you avoid conflict to make peace with other people, you start a war within. And I can, yeah, I cannot, that is a sobriety danger zone to me because what I could do is hide in the pantry during the party while she got drunk and, you know, eat muffins, talk bad, and that's, that's, that, that would be ruining my sobriety. Mm-hmm, I could mm-hmm. talk bad about her and make fun of her. That would be ruining my sobriety. Mm-hmm. I could lie about what was happening to my kids. That's not okay with me. Um, so you just got to fucking grow up. How do you divorce it from your sort of, say, feelings of self-righteousness? And how do you overcome uh, the, how do you overcome that nervousness? Say something happens where you think, fuck, I'm going to have to talk to this person because they're behaving in a way that's not okay. Yeah. Like, I find that quite frightening. And yeah, I, yeah. How do you do it? Have you got a, have you got a particular language? Because yes. in, in twelve step language, I'd have to make sure that I'd step tend it, meaning yeah. I've inventoried yeah. it and I've taken out my own self righteousness, my own grandiosity, yeah. judgment, m- my own judgment, so that I can now then say to them, you know, like, hey, if you're going to be at our party, you can't drink. But even sometimes then, I balk, like I bottle at the point of like, you know, I may not have followed through past the bit which went, oh, I'll take it easy. I might have gone, well, I've done my part. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there she is, drunk. You know, like it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that. That's really it's not, cool. Yeah, it's not. It is not easy. It's just being an adult. Right. I've, I've, I've struggled. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. No, we've got to the root. I've refused to grow up. I've rejected adulthood. No, it's, it's just corruption. you know, and it is. It's also what are the alternatives? Let's let's think through the alternatives. 
Okay, so the other the alternatives are I don't actually be using this shit. Get a pen. No, no, I think the alternatives, like which I thought through for a week. It's not like I was like, hey, I need to have a hard conversation with her, and I'm so good at those. I was like, fuck, I don't want to do this. And oh my god, did you know I was walking up the path and that? Yeah, I role played it with my husband. Like you you role played. Yeah, totally. And it's the most generous thing I do because here's what we here's here's where self righteousness comes in. I'm better than you. Act like me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying that. Yeah. But the one thing... How do you extract that from the discourse in real time? How do you... Do you you cover that? Do you sort of go, listen, I don't think I'm better than you or anything, but can you not drink at that party? I don't don't do the disclaimer where I don't say that. No disclaimer. You can't even do a disclaimer. You can't even do a disclaimer because that's kind of bullshit. No disclaimer. I'm putting that on the list. No, you just say... Disclaimer is bullshit. Here's the hardest thing. Yeah, it is bullshit. It is, it is arming yourself up and giving others an, an opportunity to arm up. It's basically saying, hey, hold on while I put on my steel jacket. And uh, you may want to grab yours, too, because shit's getting ready to get real right now. Like, that doesn't work. Like, you just say, I'm having the party. I really want you and the kids and your husband to come. But here's the thing. If you come, you can't drink. There's no judgment. There's no judgment. And there's no, like... Well, I'm doing this because everybody, everybody talks bad about you, and I don't want to talk bad about you, so I'm talking to you. No, it's none of that. Oh, yeah. It's no grandiosity. Why it's don't no... we do that again? Why don't we do the, the, the bit where you went all fast, and you go, hey, this is the thing, everyone's talking all bad about you. Why do we not do that? Because that's self-righteousness. I'm better than gossiping about you. I'm doing this because... Oh, uh, you, you want them to see, you want them to see yeah. the working out. Yeah, and that's a stealth request for a pat on the back. I'm not gossiping about you like everybody else. I do a lot of stealth requests for pats on the back. <laughs> I do them just up front, like, hey, pat me on the back, asshole. I need it. Like, hey, give me some love here. Working hard. Boundaries, heart. Um, all right, that's that one. That's good. <laughs> He's making a sad face, y'all. <laughs> which, which is incongruent with the bun. <laughs> I don't like it. You can't have a sad guy in a flow bun. You you really can't. It's I out of flow. Like because I know this is true. I know what you're saying is true, isn't it? There's always there's often. Well, I suppose it's resonance is the word. Like when you hear something, you think, yeah, I, I know. And I've got a program. I know how to sort of apologize to people. I know how to make amends and stuff like that. You know, like I have a sort of personal belief that whenever something happens that I'm uncomfortable with. You know, emotionally, that is like there is some wisdom in it. There's something in it. Totally. That, yeah, you feel that. I, I mean, I don't think wisdom is delivered. I mean, wisdom lives in the birth canal. Like it doesn't come easily. Like it comes through labor, emotional labor, physical labor, spiritual labor. Like yeah, hmm. yeah. And I think I have not ever done anything that was super valuable in my life that I thought really contributed to the world. That either didn't scare me shitless or wasn't really uncomfortable. It's weird, isn't it? Because that's not how it looks from the outside. Like earlier on when we were talking about the TED Talk that's, you know, turned out to be defining, it doesn't look like you're someone who's wrestling with anxiety and doubt. You look like a free-flowing person who's doing what they want to do. You You know why? Because have you seen Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie? Do you remember when um, Freddie Mercury, the he says to his girlfriend, they're laying on the floor in that bed that's kind of underneath the weird piano. Um, and he says, when I'm on stage, I couldn't sing off note if I tried. Mm. Um, when I'm on stage or I'm teaching in a classroom and I'm connected to the people there, yeah. I couldn't be out of flow if I tried. Yeah. But everything leading up to that day, 
the bucket of tears I cried after that day, like when it went viral, the pain that that caused, Mm. you know, like none of that's easy for me. And it's really hard. I'm super introverted. I'm private. Um, And so that was really uncomfortable for me. Yes, I recognize that. Your introversion is housed within your family life. That's how you cope, huh? You've yeah. got a strong marriage. You, I do. And you've got, like, obviously strong relationships with your immediate family members, and that's where you can be. This is something that I'm coming to quite late in my own life, like a marriage where I feel like I'm at ease, where I'm at peace, relationship with my children. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about for my personal uh, um edification yeah was uh like what are you doing about like children that they're one and two my two-year-old daughter she's intense person yeah real intense she keeps she hits the other one she hits me she's really intense like what do you do when you're dealing with people like you know like what do you how do i deal with this little person that has limited language skills limited emotional abilities but from the outside it looks like a great deal of power um, you know, they have, you know, she, she probably, she may have a lot of power. And I think, you know, first of all, two is an intro. How many months is she? Two years and two and a half. Two and a half. So, oh, Barrett and I are looking at each other. This is a tough touch point. She's yeah. my sister. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she has an identical twin. Yeah. And I have, we have a brother in between. But so it's really interesting because up until about 18 months, kids are pretty compliant. And then between 18 and 24 months is when children develop a separate sense of self. So if you look at some of the early studies that probably would not get through human subjects today, where they took like a, you know, maybe a 16-month-old, they'd put rouge on its nose, they'd ha- stand it next to the caregiver, in a mirror, the child would look at its nose and look at the caregiver and then try to wipe the rouge off the caregiver. They don't know that they're separate people. But then starting 18, 24 months, you put the rouge on, they look in the mirror, they wipe it off themselves. They know that they're separate now. So their job developmentally at this age is to exercise and confirm a separate sense of self. You say sit, I stand. You say don't go in the street, I run toward the curb. Charlie would like, we'd put peas down. We're choice theory parents. So we believe in choice theory, which is saved. It's just amazing. Um, So we would put peas on Charlie's tray to eat for supper, and he would pick them up, and he'd throw them on the floor. And we'd say, Charlie, you have two choices. You can leave your peas on your tray, or you can be done eating. What do you choose? He'd look me right in the eye, take those peas, drop them right on the floor, and say, okay, Charlie, you chose to be done with supper. Ahangi, ahangi. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's too bad. I really wanted you to eat more, but you chose to be done. That's it. He's done. How many times do you need to do that before they recognize? It's a harder question that you need to ask. <laughs> How many times do you backslide before they don't believe you? Fuck, every time. <laughs> right. I'm always backsliding. You have to backslide once before they know you're full of shit. Those kids got me. But then, here's what's terrible about that. The backsliding instills in them a sense of insecurity about place and self. Oh, no. Yeah. Protein this time. Potassium's not going to be enough. <laughs> you switch from bananas to, to pecans. Um, yeah, and so, so it's really funny because Steve is a pediatrician. You know, most parents will come to me and say, oh, my God, my two-and-a-half-year-old or three-year-old has become like, you know, 
a revolutionist. Like, I, like they, they're holding the entire family emotionally hostage. You know, they're hitting, they're biting. And, you know, and Steve, will, as a pediatrician, would say, tell me more. Okay, okay. Oh, this is wonderful. Developmentally right on task. You know, so his viewpoint is if they're not pushing back a little bit at this age, but this is where super capable of understanding empathy. So, like, reach over and kind of reach over and kind of tap my face like you're hitting me like a two-year-old. Hey, Russell, when you hit dad's face, it hurts dad. That's not okay. We don't hurt each other here. You keep holding a hand. You make eye contact. Yes. Yeah. And then let's do it again. Okay, then, but no, no hitting. Right. And Russell, if you choose to continue to hit mom or dad, you're going to lose some privileges and go to your room. And you're going to have to be by yourself until you figure out why you want to do that because it's hurting people's bodies. You're hurting my body. So then, okay, Russell, I'm so sorry you chose to go to your room. Like, you don't engage in the power struggle. You're not making the choice. You're not sending her to her room. Brilliant. You're saying, and it was interesting because was I... a three-strike system, I noted. What three-strike system? Well, it's like the first, well, like the first one, there was a bit of conversation. You're adding a third strike. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Get the hell off of yeah. that. No, it's like, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to teach you to understand. You're hurting dad's body. You're hurting daddy's body. And we don't hurt bodies here. Like, you know, do you spank? No. Yes, like we don't spank. So it's, we can say, in our family, we don't hurt each other's bodies. And so, but it's a really two and a half, three, a really important time to start teaching empathy. That really hurts. And we don't do that here. We don't, daddy doesn't hurt your body. You don't hurt daddy's body. Are you good at maintaining these? Are you good at maintaining in general external sort of composition when you're feeling quite volatile inwardly? Because both the trip to the woman next door or over the road, wherever she is, that bloody drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Get around. She sounds like a laugh. Um, Like, or addressing the child. It's like, for me, that like when, like yesterday, Mabel, my two and a half year old. Oh my God, that's the best name ever. She's so cute, this kid. She smashed my wife in the face with like a sunglasses case. My wife cried. Yeah. Like from like pain. And And I like, I felt, so angry and I picked up and I was holding down the anger and I look at mummy you made mummy cry you cannot hit mummy in the face do you and she like starts crying hysterically and Natalie I said stop crying but I'm feeling like chimp energy in me of like wanting to control this kid it's very it's very hard with hitting and biting Hitting and biting brings up something I think in all of I mean, looking at parents, like, and all of us, especially if they start doing that when they get to school, like if they're going to like Montessori or doing something like that, then, or any school, then it's really hard because you get the call where, you know, Mabel's bit someone or hit someone and now they're not welcome back in the classroom anymore. Mm. And then you're like, what the? You know, then you go into your own shame stuff about, well, we don't know where she's getting that because we don't watch any television with hitting, we books with hitting, or do any hitting in our house. We're an anti-hitting. She learned that here. What? Wh- how would? When did you expose her? You know, like, and you get all in your crazy shit. But I think it's okay if you don't. If you've got the chimp energy, it's okay not to deal with it right there. You've got to stop the physical action. But it's okay to say, and this is really. Both my kids were pretty, very Montessori kids, but, you you know, daddy and mommy have to walk away right now. You have, you hurt mommy and we're going to walk away right now. And we'll be like, and that's when they like grab your ankle and you're like, and you just remove them lovingly and say, we'll be back. But mommy and daddy are going to walk into the other room right now. Got it. Yeah. 
And this just, is real actual info. And just like really teaching them that I'm going to, you know, and sometimes Charlie, like when he got older, because Charlie was, you know, he could be tougher than Ellen in some ways. And he would say, Charlie, walk away from you right now. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you want to be like, fuck yeah. you know, like, like, I do the walking away around here, you know, but he's, he's like, using the walk away no, system. He's turned it on you. Yeah, I know. Charlie, walk away from you right now. And I was like. And then I'd be in my closet, like, enraged, like, texting Steve. Now what the fuck do I do? He has walked <laughs> away from me. Um, but I think I can – I was not raised like that. I was raised in a very volatile ho- household. And so for me, you know, even with a 20-year-old and 14-year-old, I can probably count on one hand the times I've raised my voice. Just because I – you know why? Rage is part of my sobriety. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know if I go there where I stop. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. And so it's like I really miss smoking, so I smoke a pen. Yeah, yeah, I smoke pens. Yeah, I do. I just hold it like this when I'm driving, especially like if a really good old rock song comes on or something like, you know, the Stones or something. I just roll down my window and like that. Um, The same thing with my parenting. Like I just walk away. I put myself in way more timeouts. I don't know that I've ever actually put my kid in timeout, but I put myself in timeouts all the time. Mom's, mommy's taking a timeout. Mommy's walking away. And they don't like that because a lot of that behavior is attention-seeking. Yeah. And so they're like, this is not working. This is very good. Yeah, it's just, you it's should, choice theory good. is really good because what happens is between three and six, you've got real power struggle issues. And it's appropriate for them to try on different ways of being. That's their job. You yeah. can't. I mean, that's you. You want that developmentally for them to try on new ways. Can I split mom and dad? Can I? Can I? How long really is their tolerance for this fit in the middle of Whole Foods? Mm. Like, will they make it a minute and a half, or am I going to get the banana chips at ninety-one seconds? You know. So that's what they're doing. She cracks me so easy. Yeah. She cracks me so easy. I suppose you know Gabor Mate. Yeah. Oh, you'd like him. You know, he's like an addiction specialist. He's beautiful, really good on trauma, fantastic. Um, and I told him like a story like that she'd wanted chocolate in the bath, and my, it was bedtime. My wife goes, "No, of course you can't have chocolate in the bath." I was already back from the kitchen. Here's your chocolate. <laughs> 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 Anything else? Let me tell you one final scary thing about parenting that really changed it for me. Go on. We studied parenting, and here's the thing about boundaries. Children learn boundaries from observing how you hold them. So the way I would do it is when Ellen would push and say, no, I really want it. I really want it. Fast forward to her in the back of a car. She's 16. She's on a date. He's saying, I really want it. I really want it. I brought the chocolate. I modeled and taught her to give in when it gets too hard to say no. Because I was thinking I'd better do all that when she was more verbally dexterous. I'd say, right, here's our philosophy here. We don't do anything yeah. for anybody. But by then, she's already learned it no, from the emotional It's, it's now. Oh, it's bollocks. It's now. Right. Okay. Yeah. This is, but I think all of this is doable. But it's, this is not something like, you know, presumably Charlie, you know what I mean? You've been doing that choice theory and he's got you in the cupboard while he's going, Charlie, walk away. So it's not like a, this is not a 24-hour project. This is a continue to do this with varied results, but incrementally no. improving. No, it's... No, he walked away and it was good. He was angry. He walked away. Right. That was great. Good that he did it's that. good. I thought that was part of the power struggle. No, like, no, that no, little bastard. He's yeah, no. He's like Charlie, walk away, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. But right. he like 
But Ellen was more of a pleaser. But here's why we did it. I studied choice theory in school when I was working in residential treatment. So I was working with kids, teenage kids, who had been removed from their parents permanently and would grow up in a treatment facility. And I was the only one of the only caregivers for a two-and-a-half-year period that never had to physically take down a child. Like, we're trained to take down children when they're, like, when they get violent, when they're doing. But I never had to because I did choice theory. So I would see you, and I'd see you getting ready to fight. And I'd say, just give me one fucking second, Russell. You have two choices. You can get in this fist fight, and you will beat his ass. There's no question you will win. Or you can watch the World Series tonight. You beat his ass, you'll have no television for two months. What's your choice? Can I watch the World Series? Come right. live at your then, house with you, then, please. Yeah, then go, <laughs> then, then, go, then go calm down. And so you don't, so like even when I'd have to take something away, I'm like, I'm really sorry you chose that. I was hoping we'd be able to do this. But let me tell you, and Steve will tell you as a pediatrician, you better make good on it. If you're at a restaurant and your kid's going crazy and you say you have two choices, pull it together or we're leaving, you better be ready to, and she just keeps going, you better be ready to say, Sorry, you made this choice, babe. We're leaving. She's screaming. She's doing the banana. Yeah, she's I doing hate that feeling. The banana, yeah. And then, you know, your wife's getting everything to go. You better leave. Don't say it unless you're going to back it up. <sighs> My God, I'll tell you what, we've covered quite a lot of scope there. We started very macro. We did. And very we got, political. Really? Baby. And then we got right down into parenting. Yeah. And I never doubted you for a second. I never doubted your integrity, your authenticity, the information that you were giving, your foundations as a human being. I never felt patronized. I've got some chance to silently examine my own Oedipus complex during that. So thanks for that as a freebie. So I learned a great deal from talking to you. I was really, really very, very excited to meet you. And I didn't imagine for a moment that it could be disappointing because I knew there was so much I wanted to ask you. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours I need a wee quite bad me too so I guess we'll wrap this up I hope I get to talk to you again oh my god I'm in anytime you're a beautiful anytime you are too and I just enjoyed every minute of it it was a real pleasure to be with you thank you so much thank you cheers cheers well thank you for listening to that episode with Brene Brown I hope you enjoyed that episode. Check out my book, Mentors. Check out Recovery. Listen to some old episodes. Dr. Tom Boyce, Jamila Jamil. They're both on Luminary, those episodes. Or you can go back and listen to David Lynch. I mean, there's so much stuff. Why not listen to The Gracies? Why not listen to Naomi Klein or Al Gore? Why not listen to... Candice Owens, damn it. There's so much stuff to listen to. Remember to go and uh, sign up for my YouTube channel to get all those little video pep talks blasted down your phone hole. And uh, check out Rebirth on Netflix. Follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. And we can stay as connected as it's possible to two, for two human beings to be. In this digital age of isolation. That's Russell Brand with Under the Skin from Luminary Media. <laughs>